you have been watching Nana's testimony. I hope you have watched part one. We're going to continue with part two. In this testimony, Nana, she continues to share on our turning point from abuse, drug addiction, as well as drug abuse, gang members, prison. But the Lord showed up and he showed up big. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. Welcome to Unstoppable Faith with Dr. Kazumba Charles. This program is designed to inspire you to stand on the Word of God and to help you build unshakable and unstoppable faith in Jesus Christ. Here's your host, Dr. Kazumba. Welcome to Unstoppable Faith. Dr. Kazumba Charles here. Oh, so glad you've tuned in today. We continue. I don't want to waste much of the time because uh, in the studio today again is my guest, Nana. As she shares from abuse, we will look at uh, the turning point, our encounter with God. So stay tuned, please, and uh, get this testimony. It's going to impact your life. Let me just introduce and welcome my guest, Nana. Welcome come to the program thank you very much it's an honor and a privilege and I say that and I mean it to just hear your testimony what you do around the world for the kingdom of God and uh, I'm so thankful for you to accept you know our offer for you to share your testimony on this program glory be to God we're going to continue we ended our last conversation on uh, your second time in uh, prison Take us through that. Wow, second time in prison. Um, first time was open custody, so it was a little bit more relaxed. But this time I went to Hamilton Wentworth Detention Center, which is Barton Street Jail in Hamilton. And it was real jail this time, where I'm being taken in with the paddy wagon and handcuffs, being strip searched. Um, you know, I felt being violated all over again, but of course I understand why they had to do these um, strip searches and shower, watch a shower and stuff like that so that people aren't bringing drugs or, you know, knives and stuff like that into the, uh, the jail. Um, life there, whew. it was young offenders. Don't think it was so easy. It wasn't. Young offenders, everybody's like, yo, yo, jail, it's so easy. It's, you just breeze by it, but it's not, especially when you're a female. Um, it was young offenders and it was co-ed. Needless to say, I might have had a cellmate overnight because they would get out the next day on bail, maybe a couple days, maybe a week at the very longest um, that I would have another female in with me in my cell and the rest were all males. Um, so during the day, be locked out of our cells. So we're in the general population and with the um, general population, it was very difficult because it was males. A lot of them were in there for different, you know, thefts, 
murder, rapes, anything that you can think of, they were in there for. So they didn't make my life easy. Um, I was a cute little girl going into jail. I had short hair, so they didn't know if I was just a really feminine-looking boy or if I was just a really cute girl. Um, so they started yelling at me while I was being, you know, briefed by the guards as to um, what to do, what not to do, how to keep myself safe while I was in there and stuff like that. And these guys are, you know, catcalling out to me and, you know, whistling at me and, hey, are you a guy or are you a girl? We need a girl in here. And I just ignored them. And uh, then they put me out onto the range with uh, the guys. And there was two ranges. There was called the heavy side and the light side. So they put me in with the light side. So it was the smaller guys. But mm, they were very aggressive and they were uh, abusive. I was sexually abused while I was in there. I was uh, groped numerous times. And I couldn't just sit there and let that happen and just pray it would just go away. So I actually had to stand up and fight. So I'd have to jump out of my chair, throw my chair back, and start fighting and fist fighting. And I'd be fighting for my lives because these guys wouldn't hold back either. And the guards at the time, there was one particular guard who always bothered me. He was always harassing me, telling me, oh, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, and I have all of this privilege, and I'm just a spoiled little brat, and I'm just doing all this to get mommy and daddy's attention and everything and telling me that I'd been in there before, which I never had been in there before. I was in open custody, but not in Barton Street Jail. So I told this guard, you're wrong, you're mistakenly wrong, and any time that there'd be an incident where I'd end up in a fight, he, if he was there, he'd be laying bets with the other guards. Oh, she's gonna kick his butt, she's gonna do this, she's gonna do that to him, you know, and stuff, and they thought it was a spectator sport at that point in time. So I would end up being put in segregation a lot because of the fights, um, being warned that I'm going to end up getting charged for the assaults inside the prisons. And meanwhile, it was me just defending myself and trying to protect myself. Mm. So it was very difficult in there. I wouldn't even eat. They took me to the infirmary because I wouldn't eat. They wanted to hook me up to IV because I was, they said I was doing a hunger strike. Well, I was too depressed. I was too abused, devastated by being in there that I couldn't even eat. I was giving away my food to the other inmates, to the guys, for protection. You know, there was a couple of guys there that, oh, you know, today we're having this, so pass me your brownies or pass me this. You know, if you give me this stuff, then, you know, I'll, I'll sit right next to you and make sure nobody touches you and, mm. and that stuff. So I was dishing out my food to different people. And I, I really got to tell you about this one visitor I had when I was in jail. Um, you know, I had my one friend's mom come and visit me numerous times, give me words of encouragement and stuff like that. And I just adored her for that. But this one particular day... She wasn't coming. I knew she wasn't coming there, and my name got called out for a visitor. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I went, got in the lineup, got taken from my area to the visitation center. And when I walked in there, it was my mother. Wow. Sitting at the phone, you know, plexiglass there. And I sat down, and I just picked up the phone slowly, and I'm like, hello? 
And the first things out of her mouth is, what's it like to be in jail, you jailbird, you? And she got really nasty and mocking me that I was the one in jail. When in reality, she should have actually been in the one in jail for the abuse she put me through. So I slammed my phone down, I got up, and I walked away. And she was still screaming and yelling on the other side of the window. And they asked me, the guards asked me, who is that? And I said, that's my mom. And they're like, wow, you want to go back to your cell? I said, yes, please. And they actually gave me time alone in my cell just to process what I'd just gone through. Like, mm -hmm. my mother is the one who put me there. And then she's the one who shows up calling me a jailbird. Like, wow. that was devastating to me. Because I would have been better off if she didn't bother to come in and see me at all. <laughs> I was starting to do programs in jail. And I was actually starting to see one of the counselors there. So I was actually starting to do something. And that just set me back so far. <laughs> at that point, it was just I didn't care if I lived or anything anymore at that point. Because she could still get to me. <laughs> Even in prison, she was still getting to me to abuse me mentally or emotionally. Whatever way she possibly could. And she wanted to. She was able to do it. So, um, the one guard who always gave me her time, he saw that I came back early from my visit and without any of the other inmates and came to my cell and, oh, here we go again. You and your silver spoon in your mouth, throwing a little temper tantrum, boo-hoo, boo-hoo, you know, and he always would recite my first initial of my name and my last name. And finally it dawned on him. That, that first initial wasn't a ginger, it was another name. And the last name just happened to match up with mine. So he, the light bulb went off for him and he's like, oh, do you know this person and said my father's name? And I looked at him, I said, yeah. I said, that's my dad. And he's like, oh, please tell me that you're not one of his victims. And I said, yeah, I said, I am. And he felt so bad, he apologized to me for the rough time he gave me and everything. And he thought it would be good news to tell me that they let a couple guys in on him while he was in his cell, you know, <laughs> that he got beats while he was in there. And uh, so, yeah, that was a really horrible time for me in my life. I felt so abandoned and with other criminals that were worse cases than what I was and worse backgrounds than what I had. And... I didn't fit in there either. I just didn't know where to fit in anymore at this point. And then now we're going to fast forward here. You come out of uh, the prison. We want to go to when you are 17 years old. At 17 years old, you go pregnant. And at, it's at this time where your desires not to want your child to go through what you went through led you to start uh, or to start looking at Jesus, but you're still struggling with the drugs. You're still hooked up to drugs. Take us through that. Um, but I'll take you through from when I got out of jail. When I got out of jail, um, I had no place to go at that point. The mm -hmm. chaplain from the jail actually told me that I could stay at her place for about a week um, tops so that I can find a place to go. Which, of course, you know, I went to her place. They were a lovely family. I was happy to be there. I felt like I was important at that point. They even allowed me to look after their children and stuff like that. So I kind of felt a bit, starting to feel a little bit good about myself. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody trusted me. And um, 
So I left there because I only had a week there, and then I went to a, another group home. And with this group home, I ended up with one of my street gang members coming and living in the group home. We didn't tell them because they knew, you know, if we were gang members together and I was out of that gang, so was he because he was just getting out of prison too, um, that then we weren't allowed to be under the same roof um, due to the, the gang um, relations. Um, so we didn't say anything and of course then, you know, he's my boy so I'm going out and we're smoking drugs together, we're, you know, parting it out, you know, and stuff like that and uh, he got me involved in another type of gang and introduced me to the father of my child and uh, that was in a bike gang. So I ended up getting even deeper into trouble and, uh, you know, still with the crime, still with the drugs and that's actually when I got into the masculine and the, um, the hallucinogens and stuff like that. That was, I didn't care if I lived or died at that point. Those are drugs I've never even heard of. <laughs> And I'm glad you never heard of them, <laughs> to be honest with you. I wish nobody ever heard of them because mm -hmm. it was really messing up my life. Um, like I said, I was at the point of I didn't care if I lived or I died anymore. Um, and um, that was how I looked at things. I was very angry and punching people in the face. You know, girls were afraid to walk down the street past me because if they looked at me the wrong way, I'd punch them in the face. Like, I just had so much anger inside of me. And being part of this bike gang, well, hey, I'm tough now. I'm, I gotta be, you know, a tough chick and I've gotta be, you know, like show people and prove to people that I am somebody of authority. You gotta look up to me because of who I am now in the bike gang. <laughs> um, which I was actually really nobody. <laughs> but, you know, I just, that was my channel and my avenue of getting my aggression, my anger, my hatred, bitterness and everything out of me. And it wasn't fair to society. It wasn't fair to anybody who ended up being on the receiving end of it. And uh, I became pregnant. And when I became pregnant, that's when I kind of just like, whoa, I had to take a step back. And I'm like... And you are 17 years old. I was 17 point. years old. <laughs> <laughs> 17 years old and part of the bike gang and just going oh my gosh and on drugs I was hooked on speed and I've got a backtrack here on that one um, I forgot that when I was also at the group home when I left the group home because I took off from the group home I ended up being a live-in nanny <laughs> and that was like you know just before I turned 17 and that so from 16 straight through and to when I became pregnant and the mother of the children that I was living nanny for, she was actually my dealer. I didn't have to pay for the speed at all or anything. When she was going out the door, maybe six o'clock in the morning for work, she's putting a handful of speed uh, tablets down for me. And they're just little tiny white pills. And she put 30, 40 of them down. And I'd be popping them all day long while I'm taking care of her kids. Two of the kids were in school, so kindergarten, I think grade two. Wow. And then a one-year-old at home that was with me all day long. Well, I'm higher than a kite. Wow. And I was cleaning the house. Like, you could eat off those floors. It, I just 
that's how I reacted to my high, was that I just cleaned everything and I just wanted everything to look beautiful. And, you know, it, it, thank God it was a positive kind of high, you know, cleaning and stuff. But the baby was safe, though. That was the thing that I look back at now and I'm like, thank God I didn't hurt that baby while I was high as a kite. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd ever be able to have forgiven myself because mm -hmm. I did love those kids. Um, so when I found out that I was pregnant, that's when I just said, no, I can't be doing these drugs. I can't be doing this to my child. I want better for my child. I don't want my child to go through the struggles or the hardships that I've been through. And I didn't want my baby born addicted to drugs. So being as addicted I was to speed, when I found out I was pregnant, I was just like, no, done. I didn't take any more tablets. I when I actually found out I was pregnant, I was on LSD. Mm -hmm. And I felt so guilty and I couldn't even get it out of my system mm -hmm. because it just has to wear off and work its way out. So after that, I didn't do any more drugs. I stopped it. I was like, no, I can't do this. And that's honestly when I can see God touched me. I didn't realize it at the time, but I look back and I see God touched me because with the drugs that I was doing, and especially with the addiction to speed, just cutting them off and cold turkey like that, it's not, you know, where you're just going to cut it off and you're peachy keen. You're going to go through very severe withdrawal symptoms, mm -hmm. um, you know, and possibly even end up dying, you know, if you don't get some sort of help. But I know that's when God delivered me instantaneously. When I made up my mind, I'm not doing drugs anymore because, to be honest with you, I had zero, zero, zero withdrawal symptoms at all nothing I woke up the next morning I was okay I went about my day I didn't touch any alcohol I didn't touch any drugs and I didn't even have that craving for them anymore <laughs> so you know I, I just wanted the best life I could have for my, my my child you know that I was pregnant with and that is a that is a good and a great desire and I believe that it is um, it is and it was the Holy Spirit really inspiring or putting an inspiration on you to find something different for your child. Now, with all this is going on, you looked for peace, you looked for stability in life, self-worth from the damage of uh, being looked down upon, self-esteem, that's what made you go into all these gangs. And then uh, you looked for relationships in uh, wrong places uh, fast forward here at the age of 24 how many kids did you have at that age well okay actually it's 19 days before my 24th birthday I gave birth to my third child Wow 19th Ni 19 days 19 days before my 24th birthday mm -hmm. as I gave birth to my third child to your third yes. child now, all these kids, different fathers. All different fathers. So your world, your life is just everywhere. It was crazy. Um, like you said, I was seeking for that peace. I didn't know what the peace was. I didn't understand what peace was. I didn't know how to achieve peace. I didn't know where to look for it. So I was looking everywhere and anywhere. I looked at a few different types of churches, which I didn't realize at the time, but now I understand they're all cults. Mm -hmm. um, so wow. I went from one extreme to the next, just seeking and looking and 
trying to make sense of what does peace look like to me? What does acceptance look like to me? Because mm -hmm. I didn't even know what those things would look like, um, you know, except for in negative aspects. So what do I feel that I want or what do I feel I deserve in life? You mm -hmm. know, the peace and stuff. Where do I look for it? And you didn't get all that. Now, we're going to go now to an encounter. You had an encounter with God that changed the direction of your life, your opinion or the opinion of yourself, of how you looked at yourself. Um, and then you experienced also the love of God. I want you to walk us through this encounter because I believe this is why you are making an impact in the world. I know our viewers haven't yet heard what you do and what you've done, and we'll be showing that video of what she does around, you know, the world. But I want you to tell us now your encounter with God. My encounter with God, wow. Um, I found a church, and it seemed to have the components that I was looking for, peace, um, acceptance, and love. And so they said there's a weekend encounter for the ladies, you know, and they asked me, please, we really would like you to go on it. And I said, sure, what can it hurt? You know, like I still hadn't actually been touched by God. So, you know, I was attending church, I was listening to the words and having the seeds planted, but I still haven't had my touch from God himself. So I was still kind of skeptical, you know, is this God stuff real? You know, you know, I just, God, if you're real, just show yourself to me. And I went to this weekend, and this weekend retreat, it was, we wrote down every negative thing from our generational curses, different things like that, things that we know like alcoholism, drug abuse, um, physical abuse, uh, divorce, you name it, whatever is in your family background, immediate family or grandparents, et cetera, generations back, and so I was writing it all out and um, they had like checklists. So you kind of check it out, you know, check it off. And if you weren't too sure, that's when you started writing things out. I was checking boxes and checking boxes and checking boxes. And I was like, are you serious? Like, this is everything, you know, racism was on there. Parts of different occults, um, different organizations, you know, KKK was in there with that stuff. So, I mean, I'm checking off almost every single box that was there. And I was just like, wow, that is heavy. That's overwhelming. I have all of this in me because it's in my family. So that's when we started, you know, praying and just trying to, you know, ask God for forgiveness for things that we have done, but also turning around and asking for forgiveness for our families, you know, things, the generational curses that were upon me that I didn't even know about, you know, and we start praying and, and going on about these things and something inside me said, get on your knees, get on your knees. So I got on my knees. And I was feeling really strange. I kind of looked around a little bit. I seen there was other people on their knees. And so I turned my head, put my head down on my chair, and I continued praying. And then I just lay on your belly, lay down. 
And I'm like, okay, where is this coming from? Who is telling me to do these things? Am I growing crazy? Am I losing my mind? And then I laid down. And I just felt like a nice warm blanket was put on me. And I started having this vision. God was touching me. He was healing the brokenness that was within me. He showed me as a little girl up on his shoulder. My belly is on his shoulders and he's got my arms stretched out and he's holding them high. I can't see his face, but it was God. And he was telling me, you're beautiful. I love you. I've always loved you. Feel that nice breeze. It was a perfect day. We were on the beach, sandy beach, nobody else around. It was cloudy, but yet it was still sunny at the same time. It wasn't too bright. You see the reeds blowing with the breeze, but you feel perfect. You don't feel cold. You don't even feel the breeze, really. You just see that it's there. It's there. And he was just telling me that I was beautiful, that I'm his little girl, that he is my father. And all of the pains that I went through as a little girl, that he was always there. And I just started to cry while I was laying there on the floor. I didn't even know I was still on the floor. I actually thought I was on his shoulders. I felt like I was that little girl. And I felt the joy and the love and everything was just so overwhelming for me. And then it switched, the vision switched. Now I'm looking at this scene from above looking down. And I see this little girl crouching behind this big pine tree. And I look closer, and that little girl was me. And it was a time when I was about six years old. I ran away from home. I didn't even want to be Ginger anymore. I wanted to be Angela. Call me Angela. Anything's better but being me. So when he was showing me this, I heard them calling for my name. I heard them saying, Ginger, Ginger. And I just stayed behind that tree. I was frozen. I was shaking. I didn't want to go home. And God said to me, when they didn't want you. I wanted you. Amen. When they didn't love you, Amen. I loved you. Amen. When they beat you, I was there getting beats too. Mm-hmm. And he told me how precious I was to him. He even told me when you didn't want your life, I wanted your life for you. And I held it for you. I wrote a letter after I woke up. I was just, I couldn't breathe anymore. It was such an emotional encounter. I was just crying uncontrollably. And I just felt the love and I felt that hole in my heart closing. It was closing, that emptiness, everything that I was searching for, the peace, the stillness, the tranquility, the love, the acceptance, everything. I had it, boom, in an overabundance at that moment when God touched me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, people of God, as we wind up today's uh, broadcast, and we'll be back with uh, Nana as she shares more on an encounter with God, and we're going to go into our ministry and how the Lord is using her around the world. But I want you to know this. One encounter from God, one encounter from God can change the perception of your life and erase 
the memories, the effect of what you went through. All we need is a touch from God. Our God is good. You may be there, you think, well, you, you, you're feeling worthless. You think, you know, you are nothing. But I want you to know, to God, you are everything. Like Nana, God is interested in you. God is interested in your life. I declare today to you to say, tend to God. Tend to God, look to God. Not look to man, but look to God. And you will find your worth, you will find your love, you will find your strength. I pray on this broadcast, uh, trust me, come on back to the next segment because Nana, she will be praying and releasing the anointing of God upon your life in our last segment. May the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you. Until then, shalom, shalom.